The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 16th chapter. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe? He replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are far more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you their true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It is a test of character. So says one of the wisest admirals the United Federation of Planets ever produced, Admiral James T. Kirk. It is a reference, of course, to the Kobayashi Maru, a training exercise that is not designed to test knowledge, but to see how a trainee would respond to a no-win scenario. In this scenario, some innocent merchants have found themselves abandoned and trapped in the neutral zone, a border area that weapon-carrying spaceships are not to enter, kind of a demilitarized zone. Well, these poor merchants, though, they're in a broken-down spaceship, and they're almost going to run out of oxygen unless someone hears their beacon and goes in and rescues them. And so, therefore, this trainee is faced with two options. They either enter the neutral zone, A clear violation of the rules as they possess photon or proton torpedo, some kind of torpedo and the like, and they will save the merchants. Or they disobey orders uh, or disobey or do not listen to these merchants in need and they let them die, but they followed the rules. So you do one and you prove that you are a rule breaker who will try to save lives. You do the other and you prove that you are a rule follower who will cost lives. It's a test of character. 
Now, when is character actually formed? Well, it's always in the midst of difficulty. Not when everything is easy, and not when we simply follow the popular. No, character is formed in those moments which present us with hardship or even no-win scenarios. Might this parable uh, from Jesus this morning have something to tell us about Christian character formation? And what really is the state of Christian character formation in our own day and time? Well, the answer to the first question is yes. This parable does have something to say about Christian character formation. And the state of Christian character formation is, I'm afraid, not as good as we would hope. Christian character formation has suffered, I think, from an imbalanced view of Christ himself. Jesus, because of his great mercy and compassion and love, is often seen as little more than a nice guy who affirms us just as we are. God's forgiveness then over time becomes unconditional love. That's a very common phrase in the church today, unconditional love. God's kindness becomes an absence of discretion or judgment. God's law, oh well, Jesus died to fulfill that. We don't even have to worry about that anymore. The Christian church, I don't know, sometime in the 60s, maybe the 70s, maybe the 80s, maybe in different ways at different times, it reacted against all of those unpopular, fundamentalist, hell-loving, judgmental preachers, you know, the ones that grabbed all the headlines. And they decided, you know, God needs a makeover. The only attribute that survived this makeover was God's love, his omnipotence and holiness. Nah, God kind of became our personal God rather than the all-powerful being worthy of our worship and adoration. But that incomplete understanding of God did have one advantage. It managed to always safely put him in our corner. And if God always approves of us as we are, well, then we really have no need for character, do we? You can't form character if there are never any hard choices to make. And you don't have any hard choices to make if there's no real difference between good and bad or right and wrong. And while I don't desire to go back to the good old days of fire and brimstone, per se, although it is in the Bible, I would like to reclaim the biblical view of God. You know, the one is the sovereign king of the universe who does indeed love us and shows grace towards us and who also calls us to live by his holy standards. Without such a view of God unashamedly, unapologetically, and unambiguously taught by the church, we should never expect our message, which, by the way, is the whole counsel of God, to be heard. And what we therefore end up with is a lack of character formation, because God does not will not, and has never apparently judged sinners. Without judgment, there's no need for character. We can all just live as moral free agents. 
as it says in the book of Judges over and over again, in those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. Surely that describes our own day too. Well, how does this parable help? I mean, this is a parable literally about a dishonest steward or manager. The guy lies and he cheats his own boss. Well, I don't think the parable uh, has the point to be dishonest, but rather to be shrewd, to be tough. We live in a sinful, fallen world. Jesus knew that, and it's not going to change. So how do we navigate it while still racking up some wins? While the steward's solution may have lacked virtue, it possessed an abundance of toughness and grit. If only those traits could be put to use for the good. I sometimes wonder, and Jesus doesn't say, so it's mere speculation, if the master didn't say that he was going to fire this guy to see how he would respond. Put it out as a test of character. See if he's got what it takes to figure out a way to keep his job. And if so, now you know who this person is. And now you can put him to good use. Christians have survived on happy talk for decades because, come on, our success was never really in doubt. Everyone was either Christian or felt the pressure to conform to Christian social norms. But now, as a critical mass of our society becomes less Christian, more people will be comfortable joining that herd or leaving our herd. So while we have simply taken all of this wealth that we've been given and we've been slowly spending the capital, we're now at a point where we may not have enough capital to fund the dividends. If our only strategy now going forward is just to spend whatever's left in the treasury, we should expect to fail. But Jesus is saying, I think, be shrewd now while you still have the chance. So what can we do to prepare for the day when all of this could be taken from us? Well, right now, we use this very property as an income generator for us to fund this ministry habit of ours. I think that's actually pretty shrewd. Us as individuals, we take money from secular corporations, and we turn that money into offerings to the church, and we use it for the kingdom of God. That's pretty shrewd, too. Our outreach needs to be more shrewd. And this is where I think most churches fall short. Our marketing message is pretty pitiful. Rather than just presenting ourselves as the uh, smiley faces that will make your life better, the church should present itself as the group of people with answers. And not just answers to existential questions of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, although those things are, of course, critical, and wildly important, but even answers to granular things, too. I think most Christians, if asked, would say, well, the Bible really doesn't say anything about, you know, day-to-day -day stuff. But think about it. Do we not have answers to 
immorality and the costs of immoral living, answers to economic and trade questions, answers to crime and punishment questions, answers to marriage and family questions, answers to depression and anxiety questions, answers to military and police questions, answers to taxation and governance questions, and many more besides. Do we have within us a wealth of resources to to say to the world, we have thoughts on this, it comes from God's word even, and while applying it may be discussed and debated in some particulars, we definitely have some, some ideas about the big picture here. But the church's posture is more often something like desperation, hoping and waiting for people to finally hit rock bottom and come to the church doors on their knees, tears streaming down their face, and finally say, I just realized that I am dealing with existential dread. Uh, That's not going to happen. Maybe, maybe someone will come to the church in such dire straits when they have tried everything else, and they finally come to the conclusion, oh, I got it now, It's, it's God that I've been missing my whole life. Maybe. But I don't think that will happen quite often. And so, for example, I wonder how effective massive billboards that say things like, hope again, are. What is that billboard saying? Well, it's accusing everyone of being hopeless, right? They, they, they have no hope. They can now hope again, and we have the solution to that. The hopeless, though, shy of a major downturn in life, they often don't even know how hopeless they are. So perhaps being shrewd and finding provocative ways of waking people up to their own dread or sadness or hopelessness or anxiety that they're just living with day to day That might be a shrewd way to go about this, rather than uh, simply saying, hey, we're the nice smiley people, your life is terrible, we can make it better. See, that will take guts, though, and most churches just don't have the stomach for it. We only want to be seen as the nice people who mean everyone else no harm. The church has lost its edge, It's not respected. It's uh, often seen uh, as soft and weak rather than tough and compromising or uncompromising. If it, it only ever seeks to win people over with more compassion by being the happy face in a cruel world. All the while, our society has no real issue with its cruelty because it hides the cruelty that we as individuals want to indulge in. I'm getting to the point where I really don't believe we're doing it right if we don't have some very powerful enemies. And yet the mantra of the church is that we should only be everyone else's friend. Whether we like it or not, we have to ask ourselves if that is what the message of Jesus is. And I would say, far from it. He says it right here in this parable, you cannot serve 
two masters. You cannot love both God and the King James says mammon, but really that's representative of the things of the world. I don't think he's only talking about our personal checkbooks. I think he's talking about the totality of the way that the church is often going to be at odds with the kingdom of God. And the, the people of God need to be as clever as people as, of the world in helping people see that our message has application across the board, not just in these existential areas of everlasting life. Well, in case you think the sermon's been too harsh, well, it's a harsh parable. And for a pure gospel sermon, you can always re-listen to last week's sermon. It was the lovely story of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. You see, I'm not of the opinion that every single sermon has to be, you know, cover the whole gamut. You know, some texts focus on certain areas, other texts focus on other areas. I'm quite certain that Jesus would have preached more than 15 minutes, so maybe he could have covered the whole thing. But more to the point, please understand that the fruits of the gospel are not only the forgiveness of sins or everlasting life, though, again, those are chief and paramount and incredible. It is also the world that we create when Christians have influence on this society. And we should all be wanting more of that because we will all benefit from that. Even those, as it says in this parable, the sons of the world whom we deal with day in and day out. Amen.